I would love for you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. Luke 8, we'll be in Luke 18 and 19 today. Uh, has there ever been anything you wish you hadn't said after the fact? Maybe it's something that you said that slipped out in anger or, or a flippant remark that you didn't mean. Uh, for some of you, one of the things you wish you had never said is, watch this. You know, that doesn't end well sometimes. Or, or how much will you give me if you make some kind of uh, dumb bet? Um, I was reminded of the kind of internet meme or idiom, uh, hold my beer. This idea of somebody does something uh, not so smart and somebody says, hold my beer. You know, one-up it in a way that doesn't end very well. Well, this morning we begin a new series uh, that might take you by surprise, called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And I, and I say this because as much as we love Jesus and faithfully try to follow him, if you're familiar with the Gospels and his teachings, it's no secret that Jesus said some things that are extremely challenging uh, and sometimes even offensive to their ears and ours. And when we come across these sayings, if we're being totally honest and hopefully not blasphemous, it's easy to wish that maybe Jesus never said these things for our sake. I'm not contending that he shouldn't have said them, but it would be a whole lot easier at times to just kind of take our wide out and enjoy the comfortable and cuddly things that Jesus said. I was surprised to find in, in developing this sermon series that, uh, researching a little bit, I, that I'm not the first preacher to have a series uh, along these lines, meaning that it's not something that, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who feels this way when it comes to some of the tough sayings of Jesus. And so this morning we embark in this series to look at these tough sayings of Jesus, not to dismiss them, but to really understand what he's getting at and how we can live up in, in, in these challenging statements he makes. And the first one he says that we want to look at this morning from Luke 18 is this, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, great, a money sermon. But before you accuse me of being a pickpocket preacher, let's really understand what's at stake here, what's going on here. Uh, the main reaction that we have to a lot of these tough sayings is, is kind of this, okay, that's for other people. You know, Jesus isn't talking about me or to me here. And it's easy to do that, especially when it comes to uh, financial type things. Have you ever noticed that when it comes to defining who rich people are, you're never in that tier. They're always one tier above you. You know, if you make 50000 a year, then it's the six-figure people that are rich. If you make six figures, then it's the millionaires or the billionaires. Rich is always out of our grasp. And I think the reason that is is because money is something that we can never get enough of because money can never provide us the security that we need. And yet the great irony of all of this is the message on our money tells a very different story. On the back of every denomination of American money, every dollar bill are what four words? In God we trust. And yet when we look at how we live our lives, so often we live in the, in the idea of in money we trust. And so how can we move our trust from in money we trust to in God we truly trust? I remember a moment back in 2008, I can distinctly remember the moment when I learned that my world was in crisis. In fairness, it wasn't just my world that was in crisis, but this is the first time that I remember feeling the weight of these problems on my own. 2008 was, of course, the year that we realized that our country was in the midst of a full-blown recession. The stock market was in shambles, the global economy was weak, the real estate market was collapsing, and everyone was asking for a bailout. 
And now prior to 2008, I had never even heard of a recession, but in my infinite wisdom as a 19-year-old at the time, I knew what I could do to fix it. Call my mom. You know, she, she had been a banker for my whole life, and, and so surely she must have the answers. And so I called her up and I said, Mom, I, I just heard on, on the news and, and, and all these things are happening. What, what are we going to do? And she said, well, you know, honey, sometimes the economy goes through hard times and has a way of, of working itself out, and we'll just trust that God will take care of us. But that's not the answer I want. You know, that's not, that's not the fix I was looking for. But looking back and, and through that time, I know that my mom had the answer, just not the one I was expecting. And I think the issue was never, for me, looking back really about money. My issue was the security that I thought money brought me. In other words, my worldview reflected in money I trust. I believed in God and I followed him, but I was looking to Wall Street and bears and bulls and bailouts to fix my problems. Because trust is the real issue behind the statement that Jesus makes this morning. Jesus' charge to, to sell everything and give to the poor was because money was the thing that this man, who he told this to, was trusting in more than God. And so maybe Jesus' charge to you wouldn't be to sell your possessions, but his point is the same. Jesus challenges us to get rid of anything that we trust in more than we trust in him. And so we see in Luke 18 and 19 today, we see Jesus interact with two men who show us what it looks like to fully trust in God. Two opposites of each other that show us this comparison between trusting in money and trusting in him. The first guy that we meet uh, is a guy that many of us would like to find ourselves in, in his position, in his sandals. He has everything going for him. And yet he comes to Jesus with a very simple question. Luke 18, verse 18 says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One of the things I find most interesting about this man and the interchange that we'll see him have with Jesus today is that this conversation is described by three of the four gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this conversation between this man and Jesus. And when we combine these three accounts, we see kind of several characteristics of this man that let us know uh, who he was and what he was about. We see first, and maybe most obvious, that he was rich. He had material possessions. And often we read his story, and this come to the story in the Bible, we, we come to the conclusion, you know, oh, that's the story about the rich guy who couldn't let go of his, you know, bad, dirty money. But again, the problem is not with the finances. The problem is not with the material possessions. The problem is with anything that we trust in more than we trust in God. You know, like most people, this guy probably thought that his wealth was tangible proof of God's blessing in his life. You know, a lot of people, even today, you know, if you have enough faith and you are obedient and you do all the right things, then God will bless you financially. And we see this lie propagated and people come to believe that material possessions are a blessing given to them by God. And so they begin to place their trust more in the gifts than they do the giver. And so Jesus demonstrates for us here that any barrier that hinders our trust in him is the problem. This man's riches weren't the problem. His lack of faith was the problem. So we see that he was rich. We also see from what Matthew tells us that he was young. And sometimes youth can be a, a bad thing. It can be a, a lack of experience or youthful people can make you know, impulsive mistakes. But I think for this man, youth was part of the blessing. He had a lot of opportunities. Uh, he could make a difference. He had this youthful optimism, this go-get-it attitude, you know, these opportunities of his whole life ahead of him. 
I think that's one of the reasons he comes to Jesus in this moment, is he's looking to see how he can better his life at the start. We see here, as Luke tells us this morning, that he was also a ruler. We're not exactly sure what kind of ruler, probably not a king or a governor, but maybe some kind of government official, maybe a judge, maybe just very well connected with the local synagogue, which brought about some opportunities for him. Regardless of what kind of ruler he is, we know that rulers have power, rulers have opportunity, rulers have influence, and with that, a great amount of responsibility. And so we, by no surprise, come to find and call this guy the rich young ruler very often. This guy who has this bright and ambitious future, this, this future ahead of him, and has everything going for him, and yet he comes to Jesus to see what Jesus could offer him. Because still, like many in our world today, he had everything going for him by the world standards, but still he found something was missing. And so Jesus tells him in verse 19, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus begins to tell him uh, some of the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, yeah, I, I've lived a, a good life. I've, I've followed the rules. But notice of the Ten Commandments here, Jesus only gives six of them. And the ones that Jesus gives are, are kind of the horizontal commandments, the, the ones of how we relate to people around us, our neighbors and, and people uh, that we come across. What is lacking in this man's life are the vertical commandments, the, the connection he has with God. There's something in the way. And I used to read this, this story and, and through this lens that I, I thought of this guy as insincere. Like, oh yeah, sure, run up to Jesus and, and exaggerate, brag about how good your report card is. But the more I reflect on this story, the more I tend to believe him. I think this guy really did follow all the commandments like he claimed. I, I think many around him would have you know, called him you know, the really good religious guy of his day. He was probably faithful and temperate. He was honest. He honored his parents, took care of them. And yet for all of this, Jesus saw that there was one thing standing in his way, standing in the way of a genuine trust in God. And so he goes right for this man's spiritual jugular. Verse 22 says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he, the man, heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, yeah, you, you, you followed all the rules. You, you've been the, the model uh, commandment student, but one thing you lack, one thing is, is still in your way. To have a true and genuine relationship with God, you've got to get rid of the thing that you trust in more than you trust in him. And many listening to Jesus in this exchange would have thought, you know, Jesus, be reasonable here. I mean, how, how can you expect this man to give away everything he has? You know, what if he has a, a medical emergency? What if his camel gets a flat? You know, what if, what if he wants to retire someday? There, there's things that he has to have money for. And in fact, Jesus' command would have been as unreasonable to his contemporaries as it seems to us. In fact, other Jewish rabbis of Jesus' time forbade giving away your property to this extent. They limited giving to no more than 20%, else you might be reduced to poverty yourself and become a, a burden on your community. But Jesus doesn't say, give away 20%. For a sizable donation, he says, 
everything. No wonder it says his face fell and he went away sad. His, his everything was a lot. But compare this man to the second man that Jesus meets in just a, a chapter later. Chapter 19 of Luke verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, if you've been to church since you were a kid, you're, you're probably familiar with Zacchaeus. There's even a song, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. I'll, I'll spare you the rest, but you, you, we know this guy. But though Zacchaeus is popular in our retellings, he would not have been well-liked in his day. Now, I know that nobody really loves the IRS. I'm, I venture to guess that you don't send a plate of cookies in with your tax return every year. Uh, you're probably not exchanging Christmas cards with your federal agent. Uh, but Zacchaeus would have been despised on a whole new level. Zacchaeus was, was hated by pretty much everyone who knew him. He was a contractor, a tax collector for the Roman government, which means not only was he taking money to give to your enemies, but he also basically had an implied license to steal. He, he could collect whatever amount he deemed worthy, uh, uh, appropriate and pocket the extra. Whatever was collected above what the person actually owed, he could he keep for himself. And, and so Zacchaeus, looking at him, we, we find uh, this man that, that people were not very fond of. In fact, I would get, venture to guess that uh, one of the reasons that, despite being pretty short, that he had to climb this tree is because people were probably boxing him out from having an opportunity to be a part of, of Jesus coming and kind of sticking it to the man in what ways they could. But this story doesn't end up quite the way we would expect. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything he had, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. But the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I think the big question when you look at these two men and compare them is, why did the rich young ruler, the guy who had kept the commandments and been at least in some sense faithful, miss out on the kingdom, while Zacchaeus, the thief, and the cheat walk away with salvation? In fact, we even see a difference in what they're asked to do or, or, or what they do with their wealth. Jesus tells the one man, sell everything you have, and Zacchaeus only gives away half, and yet is welcomed. I think the reason is because Zacchaeus demonstrated trust, and the rich young ruler couldn't let, of, let go of what was getting in the way. It makes me think of uh, the story of a climber who fell off a cliff, and as he was tumbling down, he caught hold of a, a, a small branch, and uh, he just said, help, you know, is there anybody up there? Well, this majestic voice of God booms through the gorge, I will help you, but first you must have faith in me. Do you trust me? The man cries out, yes, yes, I trust you. Let go of the branch, boomed the voice. There's a long pause, and the man shouted up again, is there anyone else up there I could talk to? 
And I think sometimes we do the same with Jesus. We hear what he says, but we want to know if there's another way. Someone else that we can talk to, some other piece of advice that we could have. And so briefly, I want to give you three ways that Zacchaeus demonstrated his faith where the rich young ruler didn't. Three ways that we can learn to let go of the branch and fully trust God. First, to trust God more than money. I think that we need to seek a clearer picture of Jesus. In verse 19 of the rich young ruler story, Jesus says something I always found as odd to this guy. When he comes up to him and says, good teacher, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And at first it sounds like Jesus is denying his divinity, but I think what he's really doing is telling the man, before you come to me seeking my advice, asking my help, wanting to know more, do you understand who I am? Do you truly understand my identity? Do you come to me as just another teacher, a self-help guru, or do you come to me and understand what I truly require? If you call me good and God is good, what are you saying about me? Because I think really this guy was kind of missing the point. We see this in the nature of his very question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like many things in his past, he was probably seeking here to earn his way in, maybe even to buy his way in. He doesn't understand that belonging in Christ's kingdom isn't about doing. It's about being his. He misunderstands who Jesus is. Yet compare that to Zacchaeus, who's seeking to get this clear picture of Jesus. He did whatever it took to see him, even when it meant climbing a tree in humiliation to come to understand him as Lord. I want to encourage you to seek a clearer picture of Jesus, to know who he is and what he asks of us. To trust God more than money, I think the second thing we need to do is demonstrate a readiness to repent. When the rich young ruler learned of what he had to give up, what he had to sacrifice to have a right relationship with God, we see that his response wasn't repentance. I hope that he went away and thought about it and had a moment to come to understanding and came back and was able to do that. But in that moment, we don't see a readiness to repent. It says that this, the man's face fell. Mark says he went away sad because he had great wealth. The word fell is, is used in other places to describe a, a gloomy sky. The message paraphrase of the Bible says the man's face clouded over. There was a, a, a pole that came across him that he couldn't part with what was in the way. And yet when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he, he doesn't even ask to, ask to give him a demonstration of his trust by giving away his wealth. He doesn't ask him because he doesn't need to. When Zacchaeus learned the truth of who Jesus was, his response was one of ready repentance. He says, Lord, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus understood what we must learn, that when we recognize what is getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus, the only right response is to get rid of it. So maybe that's wealth. Maybe we in our financial security are like this rich young ruler. And maybe that security is standing in the way, but maybe for you it's not wealth. Maybe it's a relationship that you shouldn't be in or a job that you know is not good for you. I mean, the list could go on and on. You probably know what it is already. Whatever the branch is that you're clinging to rather than trusting in God. Third and finally, I think to trust in God more than money 
We need to adopt a spirit of generosity. Now, I know that I said this isn't a money sermon, a giving sermon per se, and it's not, but I think the greatest antidote to greed is generosity. And does that mean I'm giving you the same charge that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler, you know, sell everything you have and, and give to the poor? No. But what I do want to encourage you to do is become a sacrificial giver. Because God is a sacrificial giver. When God wanted a relationship with us, he didn't pursue us with spare change and 2%. No, Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Our generosity is rooted in God's very character, that God is a God of extravagant generosity. A God who give of himself sacrificially even to death so that we can know him and be known by him. This morning, we have to come to grips with what's standing in our way. What is the branch that we are clinging to rather than letting go and trusting God? What are you trusting in for your security and happiness? Like to that rich young ruler, Jesus is calling us away from the things that hinder our trust in him. And so I want to encourage you this week to be asking the Spirit to be revealing in you the areas where your faith is the weakest. Where are you looking for fulfillment in places that isn't him? Where, where do you need to sacrifice whatever is in the way of a true relationship with Jesus? I think for all of us, there's probably a touch of that financial security that we rely on and trust in rather than trust in God. I think that's one of the reasons why throughout the Bible, God has such concern for the poor and such love for the poor. Because they have no choice but to trust in him. And I look at around in our world and our economy and yeah, we want to bemoan it and point fingers and say who's to blame and there's a lot of other factors that even my mom, the banker, can't figure out. But I think the reason that we feel this unease within us is because it's poking at our security. It's messing with our systems of trust. And so I don't think that God is using this to punish us, but I do think he's using it to call our attention to where we place our trust. Is it in him or is it in the systems of this world? Is it in him or is it in our 401ks, our IRAs, our savings accounts? I think Jesus is calling us to trust him more than anything else. We don't have to sell everything we have and give to the poor to trust him. But he might be calling us to sacrifice so that we can make sure that we do. Let's pray and ask that he would reveal those areas that we trust in more than him this morning. Father God, we come before you this morning. And I'm thankful for the tough things that Jesus said, the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that challenge us, that shake us, and force us to come to grips with who he is. And while I might have wished on the surface that he never said those things, I know it is for my good and our good that he shapes us and challenges us with these. God, this week I pray that you would be, through your spirit within us, revealing to us the areas where we trust in other things more than we trust in you. The areas that we look for fulfillment and purpose and hope rather than looking to you. God, I know there's so many things going on in our world right now and, and on ease and unrest and all of these things that cause us to prickle and I think they cause us to prickle because it's evidence of our trust. 
And so, God, I pray that you would use whatever you can. We know that all things are at your, are at your disposal to get to the point where you can strip us away of all of the things that we trust in rather than you. We know that's hard. We know that's challenging. We know that it hurts. We know it's necessary. Help us like Zac- Zacchaeus to come to grips with who you are in that moment and with this readiness to repent. Give up whatever is standing in the way. Help us not to walk away with fallen faces over what you've called us to give up, to give sacrificially as you have given sacrificially. Thank you for Jesus and the hope that we have in his death and in his resurrection, that he has taken the price for our sins and we live in the newness of life that calls us to trust him fully. We pray this in his name this morning. Amen.